John chapter 7, uh, we are with Jesus on the Temple Mount, Feast of Tabernacles, probably first week in October, six months before the crucifixion, which will be the next feast on Israel's calendar. And uh, he came up late in the middle of the week, it tells us his brethren had come up earlier. Then he sat in the temple, began to teach. Crowds began to gather around him to listen to him. And then they started to question him. We don't, you know, where are you from, Jesus of Nazareth? We don't, when Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. Of course, that gets straightened out this morning in our study. Uh, and then he, of course, stands up and says, you know who I am. You know where I'm from. You know, he does the whole thing. And it must be irritating the religious leaders. That brings us to verse 37. It says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst... Let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come from Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? That was right after they said, Nobody knows where Messiah comes from. So there was a division among the people, as there is today, because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers, which are Levites, to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, Never a man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and knoweth what he's doing? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went to his own house, but Jesus, of course. This great feast, the last feast of the religious year for Israel, um, Again, Josephus saying it was the greatest and holiest of Israel's feast, his impression. And it tells us on this last day, the great day of the feast. Now, people argue whether this is the seventh day or the eighth day. It tells us this in Leviticus. It says, 
Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer offerings made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day it shall be a holy convocation to you and a solemn assembly. Numbers uh, chapter 29, which gives us great detail, says on the eighth day you shall have a solemn assembly. And uh, again, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 18 says it's the eighth day, a solemn day. So seems like the feast proper with the sacrifices and all that they did seven days. And then that was all capped off by an eighth day. Uh, that day was important because then it was the last day of solemn assembly. It seemed early in the day they gathered in silence uh, in the temple precincts and they listened one more time to the Hillel Psalm sung by the Levites, uh, Psalm 113 to 118. And then they would sing those psalms as they all took down their booths on the last day. And that was the last day of their festive year. That was the, the eighth day, of the Feast of Tabernacles, the last day of their religious year until the Purim, which wasn't a biblical feast in the winter, but then the, really the first of their year, spiritual year, was Passover in the spring. So it tells us here, this was the great day of the feast. Now, we know from Josephus, we know from the Babylonian Talmud, from the Mishnah, there had developed a pouring of water, which wasn't necessarily prescribed Exodus 16, Deuteronomy 23, you go through the, the, the different places. I mean, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy and so forth, Ezra, Nehemiah, that talk about the feast, Numbers 29 in particular. But several hundred years before Christ, it had developed. So by this time, each day of the feast, the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, south of the temple plaza, he would fill up a golden pitcher with water from the pool of Siloam, and then the crowds would follow him back up into the temple precincts, singing the Hallel Psalms. And then the one gate into the temple precincts proper, they called the water gate, he would enter through that gate, then go to the west side of the altar and pour out there a libation of wine and the water they had brought up from the, the pool of Siloam, and they did this for seven days uh, when they would sing the Hallel Psalms up there, Psalm 113 and 118. When they got to Psalm 118, interesting to read on your own, all the Hebrew males would raise their right hand with branches, the lulach in it, which is either palm branches, myrtle branches, and so forth, they would rattle those branches in their right hand and in their left hand they would raise up a piece of citrus fruit. And that was memorial the fact that God finally brought them into the land from the booze they had lived in and they were enjoying the, the, the benefits of the land they had entered. And as they did this with the water, we're told it was memorial of the way God had supplied water for 40 years in their wilderness journey. That's why they were dwelling in booths, to remember that. They did it 
remembering that this, the past year they had lived, God had supplied the rains. It was also called the Feast of Ingathering. It was the last Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, Sukkah, and so forth. And they also did it, Zechariah 14, looking forward to the Messianic Age, because they believed in the Messianic Age, the rock that had followed them in the wilderness and provided water, the rock would be in Jerusalem, and rivers would flow from that rock and cover the earth and heal it. That was their belief. Now, standing in the middle of all of this is the rock. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, and speaking of Israel, they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It's a picture of Christ, rock of ages, cleft for me, this rock that was split. He said that rock was Christ. So here's the rock standing in the midst as they're memorializing the rock that gave them water through the wilderness. Here's the rock that has the Messianic age centered around him, and the waters will flow from Jerusalem and cover the earth again. Here he is standing in the midst, this solemn day, this last quiet day, the morning of the eighth day, and all of a sudden, in that quietness, now if we just told you to be quiet here for two minutes, you'd freak out. You know, silence, and all of a sudden they hear, if any man thirst, they're going, oh, vey, he's here, you know, you know, let him come unto me. He, he cries, it says, he screams this out loud and drink, and he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, John tells us, which they that believe on him should receive, future tense, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, the reason because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Isaiah tells us this, it says, therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. It says, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and thy blessing upon thine offspring. So forth you go through the Old Testament. Zechariah, again, chapter 13 says, in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. You read Ezekiel 47, where the river comes forward from the temple, covers the whole earth. So when it says, as it saith in the scripture, it's not talking about a particular verse, but all through the Old Testament, we have reference to this water that will flow, that it is the spirit, that it is a water of salvation, of joy, of cleansing. So John says this, he spake of the spirit, as the scripture saith, which was not yet given because he was not yet glorified. And what it does as we look down, it produces three different groups. It produces, you know, those who took hold of what he said and said, maybe this is the message the prophet. It took hold of those who said, now, what are you talking about? The, the Messiah is supposed to come from uh, Bethlehem of the tribe of David. 
And then it produced those who hated him and what he said. And there are much like that today as we look around us in the world that we live in. So certainly this speaks of, look, it speaks of those who come to Christ. When you and I were born again at that moment, it says that the Holy Spirit baptized us into the body of Christ. There was an experience you didn't know anything about. You were, you were coming to Jesus saying, I'm such a jerk, save me, I'm so empty, I'm a sinner. You weren't coming saying, Lord, theologically, I would like to be baptized into the mystical body of Christ. That's not what you did. That happened and you learned about it, but that was the spirit doing the baptizing, baptizing you into the body of Christ. There is another baptizing, John the Baptist says, and the baptizer is Christ, and that is him baptizing us, not the Spirit. He's baptizing us with the Spirit. We're baptized into the Spirit, mystical body, by the Spirit, but then we're baptized with the Spirit. You can call it filled. Peter certainly is filled on the day of Pentecost. Then in chapter 4, he stands up to speak after the lame man is healed. It says, Peter, being filled, class condition, fresh, new, filling, 431, I believe it is, fresh, new, filling. There are refills, free refills. You love that. So look, for you and I, you know, as believers here today, certainly we know that an unbeliever doesn't experience regeneration, the new birth, until the Spirit of Christ comes into them. And certainly he's pointing to us here that truth. There is a greater truth relative to that. That is that you and I, after we are filled with the Spirit from drinking, after that we continue to come. It says here in verse 37, Jesus cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come as a present imperative. He must continually be coming to me. And then drink is, is a present tense active. He must continually be drinking. And he that continues to believe on me. So there's also a process here. Um, you know, I think for you and I, we're Christians, right? Okay, a couple of us. <laughs> we go to church on Sunday. We like to sing songs. We like to complain about the songs we don't like and uh, the worship leaders we don't like. And we like to talk about the things we do like and, you know, complain about the sermon and, you know, roast the preacher on the way home, you know, to, you know we, we like, the, the, that's normal, you know, we're American Christians, we, we look at people suffering on the news, and we sit down and turn off the news and eat a hoagie, and gripe about inflation, and all of, you know, all of these things, we're, we're American Christians, and we can be, you and I, content in our present Circumstance, You know, Spurgeon said that the more of God's grace he received, he received, he said it didn't satisfy because it was so real that it made me long for more. It increased my thirst. And as you and I receive the Spirit as God's children, 
you know, it, it, it should be making us long for more of that. When I sit alone with the Lord, whether it's morning, usually, or sometime during the day or at night, and his presence is real, and I find myself drinking. There doesn't have to be anything spoken, any request made, just overwhelmed with his presence. And I think how quickly I lose that in traffic. Right? Or watching the news or some other thing that goes on around me and how often I need to come back and drink again. Drink afresh. Be filled again. And look, the world that we're living in needs that. You look at the picture, it's interesting. Take note of the speaker. Right? It's Jesus. It's not Calvary Chapel. It's not Pastor Joe. It's not a priest. It's not Billy Graham. It's not a prophet. Come unto me, he says. David would say, as the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O Lord. As the deer panteth, thirsteth after the water brook, so thirsteth my soul after thee. David not born again. Christ not yet glorified the spirit that brings new birth, not yet shed forth, given. The Old Testament tells us about those experiences. Again, Isaiah um, talks about drinking again out of the wells of salvation. Psalm 78 says, He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Jesus said, that's from me. It's not from going to church. It's not from religious leaders. It's not from religious dogma or position. It's from me. In the middle of all of this, for you and I as individuals, that's what Christianity is. It's your relationship and my relationship with him. Come to me. Come to me. All the rest of it needs to step aside. Come to me, he says. He gives us here the invitation and understand it. <clears throat> it says any man. Any man. Marred by sin. Those who would feel like I have no right to come those that have been spurned by family and religious leaders, publicans, harlots, outcasts, malefactors like the thief on the cross next to him. That's the qualification, any man. That's who the invitation is going out to. And he says what's needed in that invitation is simple thirst thirst look every one of us even you know those of us who were saved but we still have an innate thirst for his presence 
Adam and Eve created to be in fellowship with God. They understood the satisfaction of that. Adam sins. He doesn't die physically. He lives another 900 years. He doesn't die mentally. His soul didn't die. He dies spiritually. And he had tasted what was on the other side of the fall. There was nothing on this side that ever satisfied. And it left an emptiness, an innate thirst that every one of us have for God himself, for Jesus, the word that became flesh. The problem is the world we're living in takes that thirst and they try to quench it in a thousand wrong places. They try to quench it with substance, alcohol, drugs. You see what's happening. They're, they're, they're you know, inter, intersecting and, and uh, you know, enough fentanyl here, enough fentanyl there. They're saying to kill 3 million people, 10 million people. But it's a business because people are thirsting trying to quench in the wrong place. Sex, pornography, power, right? You watch people that become millionaires, you think that'd be enough. Then they want to, you know, they have a million, they want two million. They want three million, they want four million. I'm not like a millionaire because I have four kids and don't want five. But a millionaire has four million, wants five. Then they want ten. Then they want a hundred million. Then they want a billion. And once they have multiple billions, they're still not happy. Then they want to control people. And they think because they're multi-billionaires, and now they want power, thinking that will satisfy. Then they think the rest of us minions that aren't smart enough to take care of us need them to think for us and take care of us. And the problem is they're empty. They got everything and they got nothing. They haven't quenched the thirst yet that's inside of them. Some think it will be because of revenge. Some think it will be notoriety. Some think it will be beauty. You know, some think all of these different things. Think of where the world is drinking, trying to satisfy that thing inside of them. And here he's saying, you and I, those believing those drinking, that it will be like rivers, plural, of living water. Look, you are not, and I am not, the source of the river. We are simply the conduit. We're the distributor. We're not the manufacturer. It is only, you're only good for the world around you to the degree that you're alone with him. To the degree that you're alone with him. And we can be comfortable in our Christianity. I can. We can be not as desperate or thirsty as we should be for his presence. And there are multitudes around us lost on their way to hell. Are we contagious? Are we overflowing? This chapter is written for believers as well as those who don't believe. 
There are things here that speak to us. Chapters 14, 15, 16. We're going to hear about the Holy Spirit more in John's gospel than any of the other gospels. And he says here that whoever drinks, whoever it is, any man, that the door is open to any man, that's all y'all, any man. Doesn't matter if you, Satan's telling you you have no right because you're a backslider or because you've gone AWOL. Or he don't want nothing to do with you anymore. You sinned against light. The enemy can be lying to you. Listen, in all of that, you need to hear him say, come to me. Come to me. Not to all this other stuff. Come to me. Not the qualifications that church or religion put out. Come to me. You're any man, any woman, any man. That's the qualification. Come to me and drink. I'm supplying. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I have not changed. Any man that thirsty told the woman at the well, I'll give you water to drink of. And when you drink of that water, you'll never thirst again, but it'll be within you a spring springing up to everlasting life. Now in the temple, he's screaming it for everyone. Come to me. Bring your thirst. It's not going to be quenched anywhere else. Verse 39 says, But this he spake of the Spirit, this drinking, this thirst, rivers of living water. This he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe are believing, present tense, on him should receive, imperfect tense, receive and continue to receive. For the Holy Ghost, he tells us now what this water is, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So yeah, his disciples believed in him. David believed in the Lord. There was a believing, but it wasn't regeneration. It wasn't the new birth. They didn't lift their heads to heaven and say, Father. Something happened on Pentecost, and it says there the Holy Spirit was given. It was not given before Jesus was glorified. So yeah, they followed him. They were his disciples. He had not yet been glorified. That glorification took place through the cross, then the resurrection. And in the resurrection in John 20, he takes the 11 aside and breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't go to the church until Pentecost. It doesn't go to the church till he ascends. That's when he's fully glorified. We only see him drifting away. The cloud receives them out of their sight. We don't see much of the, the, the event. Because on the other side of that, when he steps into glory, all of the angels and all of the saints and everyone who had gone to paradise, is, it bursts into unimaginable praise and glory because he's brought Adam's DNA back into fellowship with the living God, which hasn't happened since the Garden of Eden, and he finished paying for all of the sins on the earth. That's when glorification, and that's when he can pour forth the Holy Spirit 
on those that are there on Pentecost and on a lost world. Here we are at the end of this all. I don't understand. He's decided we should live now. And I'm so selfish that I spend more time thinking, Lord, get me out of here than I do, Lord, overflow me. I'm being honest. I'm being honest. But I come back here and look at this and I remember never being able to quench my own thirst. I think of the things I did breaking my parents' heart. They weren't saved, but they never imagined they'd see me doing the things that I was doing. Breaking my father's heart. I remember once saying, Lord, you're my father in heaven. Your heart must be broken. My father on earth, his heart is broken. People that trusted you When I remember that, I can't begrudge anything. What's Jesus doing? Look, he's looking in a crowd way bigger than this crowd. There are tens of thousands that have just heard him scream. And he is not just screaming with his voice. He is screaming with his heart. As he is screaming today, looking at human history coming to a close. And he's still screaming the same thing, looking into people's eyes and into their lives and to their emptiness. And they're dried like a desert. And they're trying to quench their thirst with every other thing. And he's still screaming, any man, any man who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Imagine him looking at all these faces that have frozen because he's screaming out loud. Don't come to me and drink. And out of his inmost being shall flow life. Life. Rivers of living water. So now we're here. You know, this is a study. Great stuff here. We'll, we'll finish the chapter. But how much time do we... Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, our spiritual family. You know, I'm more healthy when you're spirit-filled. I'm more healthy when the staff around me is spirit-filled. I'm healthier when my family is spirit-filled. It flows over to me. And this world, this neighborhood, this city... The church that's in this greater Delaware Valley. Though they don't know it, are longing for us to be overflowing with the Spirit of God. Our unsafe family and friends, mean and cantankerous and filthy. It's because they're drinking in the wrong place. They are longing for you and I to be filled afresh with the Spirit. We can study this. We're Christians. We know important the, the it's the Word of God. You know, when we go to the Scripture, it's interesting. Whenever it's drinking, 
It's talking about the Spirit. Whenever it's washing, it's talking about the Word. And here it's talking about drinking. Do you have a spouse who's unsaved? Children, prodigals, parents, classmates. You just take it. He said, come to me. Not to Pastor Joe, not to Calvary Chapel. Come to me. You take it. How many people are around you that need you to be overflowing? And you've got nothing to make that happen on your own. But anyone can come. Any man. All you need to do is come with thirst. And if you ain't thirsty, just wait. You will be. If you ain't thirsty, you got a dry season coming. Because he wonderfully makes us thirsty. All the glory will be his when we stand in his presence. You know, he ends the scripture by saying it. Any man who thirsts, come and drink of the water of life freely. He ends the whole thing with the invitation. Verse 40, it says, Now many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Now, many of them interpreted the prophet that Moses spoke of as the Messiah. Many of them, particularly the Essene community and some of the religious Jews, felt that the prophet was the predecessor for the Messiah. So some of them are saying, this is the one, okay? There, there are those then who are heeding what he said. One of the Puritans I read gave this three headings, heeded, hindered, and hated, uh, these are these these folks they said this is the one others said this is christ so you had two groups this is the prophet this is christ but some said shall christ come out of galilee hath not the scripture said that christ cometh of the seed of david out of the town of bethlehem where david was born Verse 27 said, we know that this man, we know where he's from. He's Jesus of Nazareth. But when Christ comes, no man knows where he's coming from. Well, they know better now. It says, Christ, when he comes, won't he come of the seed of David out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people. Schisma, where we get schism from, to be a, a rip, a tear. The, between, the people are divided. There are those that are saying, this is truly, this is the one. You know, when he screamed that out, his voice was filled with power. It cut to the heart. Just imagine, this was Jehovah God, God Almighty, crying out to his lost creation. And the people, some said, they heeded. This is it. This is the one. I never heard anything like this before. Others it said they hesitated. No, no, no. The Messiah, he, he's supposed to come of the line of David, of Bethlehem. This is Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't have their facts straight. He indeed was the one. And he indeed filled everything they thought needed to be fulfilled, but they didn't have the facts. 
And there's lots of people in this world today that don't have the facts. They say they believe, yeah, but Jesus is one of the ascended masters. Jesus was on a flying carpet from India to, you know, Jesus did this year. They just don't have the facts. But then there are those, it says, who hated. Hated. Look. And some of them, it says, would have taken him violently no man laid their hands on and told us early because his hour is not yet come. It says, then came the officers. These are Levites that work for the Sanhedrin that are appointed officers. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees who had sent them. And they said unto him, why have you not brought him? And the officers, the Levites answered, never man spake like this man. Where is he? Why didn't you bring him back? They said, nobody ever talked like this guy does. You know, we were standing there. We were, we were about to get him. And he said, where I am, you cannot come. He, he, he said, he's going to leave him. Nobody can follow him. He, he, he said, you know, there was this about living water. You know, they were sent to arrest Jesus and they were arrested by Jesus. And the same voice that cried, any man who thirsts, let him come to me. They said, nobody ever spoke like that before. Nobody ever screamed out loud like that before either. The impression that was made on their hearts just listening to him speak. Imagine the voice crying out that day at the Feast of Tabernacles when they were memorializing the rock. Imagine. They said nobody has ever spoken. And these are Levites, they're religious guys. Nobody's ever spoken like this before. Then answered the Pharisees, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Oh, that's an endorsement. You know, you know, you, you don't have to, you know, if this was the guy, you'd know it from us. But this people who knoweth not the law, are cursed. Look, this is how they disdained the multitude. These religious leaders, they disdained the common people, the carpenter, the fisherman. They disdained them. And they said, people who don't know the law, that's the problem with these people. They don't know what Moses wrote. They're cursed. They're cursed. God's curse is upon them. You just imagine... This Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, what their attitude normally was to the crowds that came to the feast. Poor dupes. Poor ignorant people. They're cursed. But wonderfully, now, Nick, who we're getting to know, remember, it says here, Nicodemus said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, Nick at night, remember, being one of them, one of the Sanhedrin. Not only is he one of the Sanhedrin, when Jesus spoke to him, he said, are you the teacher in Israel? He was the most noted theologian in the Sanhedrin. He was the most desirable Jewish theologian to study with. No doubt Paul had studied with him. Paul had studied with Gamaliel. You know, this guy was head and shoulders above the, the rest, Nicodemus. And they just said, these people are cursed because they don't know the law. So Nicodemus says, oh yeah, well does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? 
They're ignorant because they don't know the law. What does the law say about doing this? Deuteronomy uh, 1, Deuteronomy 17, you go through the places that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word has to be conf- you know, confirmed. Even Felix and Agrippa said, we, we find no fault in this man. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we wouldn't have to send him to Rome. And, you know, in every culture, there's been some measure of the need of witnesses. You just don't condemn somebody. And the religious leader is saying, these people are cursed. They don't know the law. They're, they're stupid. They don't know the law. Nicodemus says, yeah, well, what does the law say, smarty pants? Does our law say we can condemn any man before we hear him? Then they said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Look, this is Nicodemus. This is how angry they are. They're, they're, now, they're slating one of their greatest leaders. They, they say, Art thou also of Galilee? Search. Are you really telling him to search the scripture? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. Except, you know, what they considered Galilee then, except for Elijah and Elisha. Second Kings 14 says Jonah comes from Gath-Heper, which is a little bit north of Nazareth. Uh, Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that he is from <coughs> Galilee. Capernaum, Capernaum, Capernaum is named after him, the village of Nahum. In fact, one of their most noted rabbis, 90 A.D., said there isn't a tribe in Israel that a prophet hasn't come from. But there's so much anger, there's so much willing blindness here, that they actually say to Nicodemus, go on and search the scripture. See if you see any prophet coming from Nazareth, from Galilee, which was so untrue. We go through the story. Then every man... <clears throat> went to his own house. Of course, except Jesus. Did he go to Gethsemane that night? Did he go to Mary and Martha's home? Or did he have a booth there in Mary and Martha's backyard that he built for the Feast of Booths? We don't know. We don't know. What we know is this. Theologically, people can argue over, is this strictly to the unbeliever or is this the unbeliever and the believer? Who cares? In the sense that if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, what, what, what's your position? This is certainly speaking to you and I, saying that he invites. He puts no limitations on who comes. And he quenches that thirst that nothing else in this world does. And when we satisfy that thirst in his presence, the Holy Spirit flows from our lives. And it will touch this lost world around us. Not because the source of the Holy Spirit is in our belly. The idea is he is the source. We are the conduit. And we're so full of what he's supplying that it overflows. If you don't need that, pray for me. I do. I do.
I read this and I think, Lord Jesus, my heart gets so bungled up with so many other things. And I'm a pastor, I do good stuff. I'm not robbing convenience stores or, you know, I'm not, you know, I do good things. But so did the Pharisees. And when I sit and his presence is there, I realize what I'm longing for all day and all night. I just go, duh. When I drink this way all the time. The question is, are you spirit-filled to where you're overflowing? That's Christianity. That's Christianity. A relation with the Savior where he looks past your inadequacies and fills you to overflowing because you're bringing your thirst to him honestly. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for myself. I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that can bow their heart today and say, Lord, Jesus, I'm thirsting for your presence, Lord. I've so bungled things up. I've so lukewarm. I've so walked away. I've so wrapped my mind and heart around a thousand other things. Lord, hear our hearts. Now, Lord, as we lift this prayer to you, Lord, let us drink deeply, Lord Jesus, by your grace of your presence. And, Lord, as we lift this song now, Lord, Lord, let it be from our mouths and from our hearts, Lord, let it be a corporate prayer, Lord Jesus. Let it rise, Lord. Inhabit our praises. Pour out your spirit. Be blessed, Lord, by what we lift to you now. Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.